If you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They will look like this. And up on the right-hand side, you're going to get the verses we're going to go through. You get a place for notes. You get four simple questions. We are asking these same questions every single week. On the back, you get a short little recap of what we will talk about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. Then you click on More and then Events in version, we will come up by GPS in that smart device and you will get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Genesis chapter 38, verses 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us where our righteousness truly comes from, what righteousness actually means, and that we can be those who get to live in your grace, in your goodness, uh, showing to everybody else who you are by what you have done in us. We ask that you would teach us through the life of Tamar and Judah as well as we look at their story this morning. Amen. Have a seat. We are doing this series called Not So Little Women about different stories of women in the Bible and what we can learn from them. So one of our problems today, I think, is that we prefer only to learn from people that we like or have an affinity towards rather than learning whatever we can, wherever the truth is actually found. And I say that today because we're going to look at a woman today whose name is Tamar or Tamar, however you want to say it. She will end up in the family line of Jesus by tricking her father-in-law into having sex with her. Yes, it's as weird as it sounds. There you go. It's kind of creepy. But all too often, we want to write off the ugly parts of the Bible and only focus on the places where it's like, oh, hey, these are happy places. The problem is the Bible is full of these ugly places, full of these terrible things that people have done. And instead of glossing over them, we have to look at them and the reason why and the grace that God brings into these circumstances. The Bible is not a book that shows you all the heroes who have ever lived in their great faith. What it's going to do is show you the failures of all humankind and how we all tend to fall into these same types of traps and that only Jesus can save us because only he is truly good. And if I were to give today's message a title, it is, She is More Righteous Than I, because the person who says that is named Judah, patriarch of the eventual tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and Judah will say that about Tamar. Now, if there's one story that proves you cannot read the stories in the Bible, as most people do, as inspirational stories filled with these great moral examples for us to imitate, it is this one. Everybody looks bad in this story. And I do want to warn you a bit. There is a section of this that is kind of PG-13. I don't do that to be offensive. It's actually just what's in the Bible as we look at it. And you're going to see this guy, Judah. Judah is the son of Jacob. He is the grandson of a guy named Isaac and the great-grandson of a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is this guy that God came to in grace and said, I am going to save the world through a descendant of your family line, one of your descendants. Your son will lead to a son to a son that eventually leads to my son, Jesus, and he will save the world. So I want you and your descendants to know me personally, to walk before me in the ways of justice and peace and truth and pass that down to the next generation. And almost everybody in this family is a total and abject failure in this regard. Judah in this story is going to fail in every aspect of this. 
and then you will meet Tamar. Is she a moral example? Well, no, not really. What's the theme of Tamar's story? Well, at the end of her story, Tamar is going to have a child, and she will name this child Perez, which means break out or break through. And the moral of all Bible stories is that our morality can never save us, but God's grace will break through into the lives of people, into our brokenness, where we would sink under the weight of our own corruption and brokenness. God steps in, and he breaks through, as he will here. So... Who is Tamar? Let's start that. Who is Tamar? Uh, we don't know much about Tamar before Genesis 38. Her name means palm tree, which kind of references being born. It's this like new life kind of sound. She's most likely a Canaanite brought into the family of God. You do not see her name anywhere else in the Bible except in the family line of King David. He names one of his daughters Tamar. You get a better idea of who she is, how this story unfolds. So let's talk about Tamar's story. Uh, Tamar's story starts with a guy named Judah. And yes, to get to her story, I know it's not so little women, but we're going to start with a dude. Okay, we're going to talk about this guy because he kind of gets us there to see who Tamar is. Our lives are connected to other people. We don't just live in isolation. We're all like this. So open to Genesis 38 if you have a Bible. That is on page 21 if you're going to use one of the Bibles at Element. In Genesis 38, you will see it starts out focusing on Judah. Now, Judah kind of became the leader among his brothers, even though he wasn't the firstborn. And they, all these brothers had this younger brother named Joseph. And Joseph was a snot-nosed brat. I know, again, we always want to clean up the scriptures. He was great. No, Joseph is a guy whose dad gave him too much and never made him work. And he's a big tattletale. And he was just a big pain in the rear. And eventually his brothers are like, we're done with this. And they want to kill him. But instead they decide, hey, let's sell him into slavery. Instead, we can make a little bit of money off this. So they do that. They take his robe. They dip it in animal's blood. They give it to their dad. And they say, oh, an animal killed your favorite son. We're so sad about that. Well, after this, I am sure the brothers start to feel a lot of remorse. Uh, they're looking at Judah as the person who kind of instigated this. Genesis 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. Most commentators speculate that here in this moment, Judah leaves his brothers and goes to this area to live on his own because they're angry with him. There's family strife. And so Judah just says, I'm not going to work through that. I'm going to bail. I'm going to leave. So he leaves. And the text here, Judah will go to these areas called Adilam, Chezeb, Timnah, and a name. 400 years later, when God gives his people certain inheritance in the land, those places will be the places that are part of the tribe of Judah in his inheritance. Now, he goes to hang out with this friend named Hurrah. And I keep telling you this, if you ever have a friend named Hurrah, Probably he's a party guy right there. Uh, Hurrah's not a follower of God, and a lot of Christians are like this. You have your Christian friends, and then your buddies who you want to hang out with when you want to do something that's wrong, and they're not going to hold you accountable. Your drinking buddies are like, oh, that's awful and evil and terrible, and you love them because you want to disobey Jesus, and they're like, hurrah! Right? You have friends who say, that's wrong, we shouldn't do it. Those are the ones you should hang out with. But then you have this guy who's like, that's wrong, let's do it. Twice. That's this guy. Verse 2, there in Adulam, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, Shua doesn't know who the one true God is. That means his daughter is also not a follower of God. So in Genesis, the book, it doesn't give her name, probably because marriages to Canaanite women were looked down upon. Essentially, Judah, Judah goes to live in our vernacular. He goes to live in Bakersfield, drinks Everclear. <laughs> 
and meets a girl who doesn't know or love God. And you've seen the relationships because they're always so stable. Okay. He took her and went into her, and she conceived a born son, and he, some manuscripts will use the word she here, called his name Ur. Verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And I'm going to apologize up front when we talk about this kid. Verse 5, yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Judah gets married, turns his back on God, his family, moves to an ungodly area, has three kids. And this text is written in a way that looks like he is not even around when these kids are born. It looks like he uses his wife for sex. He is not a husband, a father, or a dad. It's probably why it says she names them. But I will tell you this. Just like all of the scriptures, God is not done with Judah. But again, it's Tamar's story. We're almost there. The only thing that Judah does is he will pick a wife for his son, his firstborn son. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for her, for her his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And you'll see her story. It is not a happy one. And again, I just want to warn you right now, there are some PG-13 things in here. I am not trying to be offensive, but... We'll just talk about that. I'll tell you when it's going to hit. Okay, verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Ooh, what does that mean in the original Hebrew? It means God killed him. That, that's what it means. <laughs> wicked, evil. Many rabbinic commentators have all this speculation on why, but it's all speculation. But this gives people pause today, that God took someone's life. If you look at the flood narrative, a whole lot of people's lives. People say, what gives God the right well, our lives are all gifts from God's hands. We all have an expiration date. And God said to this kid, today's your expiration date. When God does this, because we are in his hands, it is not evil. God is going to use all of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, for his glory and our eventual good, whether it is in life or in death. I think there are some places in the Bible that make you sit up and go, huh, because it's supposed to make us go, huh, not, not so we would believe, but to examine our lives and look at how we are living. God has killed evil people. Oh my goodness, I've done evil things. Oh no, some people are never going to change. So God here says you are done. In the book of Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's not I'm quaking in my boots. That is this awe and this reverence for the majesty of who God is. And that can at times make you quake in your boots because of how amazing he is. But it's not just about fear. It's a reverence of who he is. Too many people don't even care. And we need to wake up and take our sin as seriously as God does. And I don't know what this kid did. God knew his heart. God knew what was going to happen. And so God took him out. Even his name said he had a problem. Er, right? Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is a bizarre concept to us. But if you were married uh, and say the husband died, the brother was supposed to go and impregnate that wife so she could have children in the name of her dead husband. Now, I know there are commentators who are completely disgusted by this concept, but you shouldn't be because in this culture, this was looking out for the woman's safety. If you were not a virgin, a woman most likely could not get remarried. They might have to resort to prostitution in order to survive. They would do this so women wouldn't get taken advantage of. And seriously, I got to tell you, looking around our culture today, we don't really value women so much. A lot of women have to have mace and guns just to get to their car. 
I think that in this culture, this is a way that they were trying to value. So Judah says, God killed your brother. Go take care of your sister-in-law. What does Onan do? Verse 9. Here we go. Getting to PG-13 here. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Now, do not think, oh, poor Onan. He just wants a kid of his own. What's happening is he is greedy and he won't share his inheritance. It's like those heist movies where they got 10 people and all of a sudden one guy starts killing all of them. So there's like three left. They only got to split it three ways. Now that's what's happening. He doesn't want to share his inheritance. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brothers. It's in the Bible. I have never had someone ask, hey, when are you going to talk about semen? Not today. Not today. Don't send me hate mail. All right. Verse 11. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. God did what? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you are easily offended today, I just want you to turn off your offensive meter just for 60 seconds. Because after I talk about Onan, every single time I typically get a certain question. And I just want to address it. It'll take me 60 seconds. Many Catholic churches and fundamentalist churches, they will tell you that Onan's sin is about masturbation. They will say, don't be a masturbator like Onan. This is not about masturbation. It is not about birth control. It's not about the rhythm method. If it is, it's the weirdest form I've ever heard of. But people want a text in the Bible to use against something they don't like. So they pick this one right here. And they say, this message is God kills people. Stop masturbating. That is not what this text is about. Okay, turn your offensive meter back on. Let's keep going. This text in the Bible is about men running off forsaking God and their responsibilities. That's what this is about. There are guys still like this in the world, and there are women still like this in the world. This dusty old book seems very contemporary because it is relating four things to us today that would be good for us to learn. Marriage, sex, children, legacy. All those things coming together. Onan doesn't mind the sex, but he doesn't want the responsibility. God here is making a family line. And so if you're Onan, gulp, Think twice about it, okay? How's the story so far, by the way? Okay, this is a good one, right? So Judah's job is to give his next son, Sheila, oh, oh, Sheila, to Tamar, all right? Uh, his two other boys are so wicked they were killed, so he's a little worried about throwing the third one in the mix. Uh, this is not Tamar's fault, by the way, at all. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. Judah knows this kid is not a good kid. He knows that. He says, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is go live with your dad. When he gets old enough, sure, I'll, I'll give you to him. But he's lying. He has no intention of doing this whatsoever. And she waits and she waits and she waits and nothing happens. Even though she's in her father's house, if there was another man that showed up who really liked her and wanted to marry her, she was not free to remarry. She is now bound to Judah's family. It's kind of like a prison sentence. And so she waits and she waits and she waits. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah is now a man with no wife. Tamar is a, man, is a woman with no husband. It's going somewhere, right? So Judah was comforted, meaning he got over his grief. He went to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hurrah, the Adulamite. Sheep shearing season is crazy. It's, it's all kinds of money changing hands, all kinds of things taking place. And this is where he's going. Get my non-Christian drinking buddy, going to Mardi Gras. I got my beads. Here we go. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she's like, he's what? 
she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She is most likely 14 years old when she marries Judah's firstborn son. This is probably six, seven years later. She's probably 20, 21 years old, and she is vulnerable. She has no prospects. She is angry, and she is now going to take matters into her own hand because she feels like she has the right. I have been wronged over and over and over in my life. Up until now, she has been sinned against. And now what's going to happen is sin will happen on both sides. And yeah, you've got to feel for her. Like, look at what has been done to her. Look at where she is. But here now she will sin as well. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. And, and this is cultural. And I'm not even going to tell you what that looks like today. My wife sometimes will be like, oh, hey, that's a prostitute. I'll be like, what? Because I, I don't recognize him. But I don't know. My wife does. I don't know why. But uh, anyway. <laughs> but, but it's kind of like you have, uh, you know, church clothes, work clothes, Going out clothes, it's like I mean, men and women both. We have, they have clothes that say, hey, I'm available. That's really what that, that is. Uh, none of this would have happened if Judah would have kept his promise. None of it. Tamar would be married. She'd have a child. She would not be in this place of desperation. Verse 16. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, meaning I want to use you. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. A young goat, that's a lot of money in those days. But he doesn't have the cash on him. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Interesting to me that God didn't kill Judah. Verse 19, <laughs> then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of widowhood. She gets pregnant. She doesn't tell anybody. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? Cult prostitute, it means shrine prostitute. It's a higher end sex worker that is more culturally acceptable at the time. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So we returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of that place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. 4,000 years from now in Santa Maria, California, people will laugh at this story. We don't want anybody to do that. Yeah. Hey, our sin gets found out. It really does. As much as you want to hide it, there it is. He says, you see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Tries to make it noble. I tried to pay her. Again, how's the story? Yeah, okay, verse 24, here we go. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She had sex. What? Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Yeah, yeah, maybe he is religious. Because you want to get this type of hypocrisy in the church or in government. Jesus calls this. Hey, the shoe fits. You got to wear it because we do, guys. We are such hypocrites. Jesus calls this plank speck. And when you go to somebody, oh, look at that speck in your eye. Let me help you. It's like, dude, you got a telephone pole hanging out of your eye. What are you trying to help me? Get that out of your eye. You got to take care of what's going on in you first. Jesus says, judge yourself before you judge anybody else. Judah is a hypocrite. 
As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. She is subtle and smart. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Getting ready to be killed, sends them an envelope. Hey, whose driver's license and passport is this? Can you just identify that for me? Today, our worst fear is getting caught. So many people today say, oh, I don't believe that's a sin. I don't feel like that's wrong. And yet we try and hide it. What are you trying to hide it if you don't think it's wrong? Gossiping about someone and they're standing right behind you. are like, oh, it's no gossip. It's <gasps> right. And you're gossiping. Maybe you have a pornography problem and you keep clearing your history and your cash. And then your spouse is like, oh, I'm going to bake some cookies. And you type in B for baking recipes and Google helps says boobs. It's like, oh, no. And you get caught. You lie. Someone catches you in a line. It's right there. Oh, I wasn't lying. Oh, yeah, you were because you didn't want to get caught. The best way to not get caught is stop doing it. And it really is. And if you do get caught, put it out there. Deal with it. Don't lie about it. Just lay it there. Your salvation rests in God's hands. Who you are, your identity is because of what he has said about you. So stop trying to put these walls up and make everybody think that you're the greatest. We're not the greatest, but Jesus is. So we can just be honest about the places that we fail. Here's the line, verse 26. Then Judah identified and said, didn't identify them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Now, that's not saying a lot, because Judah was not that righteous. Uh, these uh, preeminent Old Testament scholars, uh, their commentaries came out 80 years ago. Killen Deutsch, they actually call Tamar a saint, because they're trying to clean up the story. That is not the t-shirt I would give her. Uh, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And here's the line, and he did not know her again. That means he didn't have sex with her again. Now, what you see in Judah's life, I know it's about Tamar, but what you see in Judah's life here is this is where his entire life changes. I think everything that he has done from Joseph to lying to their dad to moving to this area to his kids dying, all these things, and this happens, and boom, he is just broken. His life just falls apart in front of him, and this is the best thing in the world because where we are most broken is where God puts us together again, and this is what you see in Judah. Now, again, it's a Tamar story, but because of what Tamar did here, it brought about this change in Judah's life. First off, Judah take responsibility. He doesn't blame her. Oh, I thought she was a shrine cult prostitute. You know, she was hot. I couldn't help it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't deny it. Oh, I did not have sex with that woman. What he does is he confesses his sin. That's where you agree with God. Yes, this was wrong. He named it. I lied. I took advantage of her. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes to repentance where you don't do it anymore. You return back to who God has called you to be. Now, Christians today, we tend to be experts at confession, but not repentance. We tend to say, oh, that was wrong. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oops, I did it again. Oh, no, that was terrible. I'm awful. That's horrible. I'm so bad. Oh, and I did it again says he did not know her again. That's repentance. But again, it's not about Judah, it's about Tamar. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Literally in the Hebrew text, this says he called his name Perez meaning Judah actually hung around and named and raised these boys. Difference in his life. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was Zerah. 
So what do we learn? I mean, crazy story, lots of stuff. What do we learn other than, you know, besides repentance? You know, in every single society today, there are certain requirements that we have in order to experience dignity and inclusion. Like back then, education meant almost nothing, almost nothing. To be included in society, to have dignity, you had to have a spouse, or especially you had to have children, period. And so don't judge too harshly because today you don't have, a, have to have a spouse and kids, but you better have an education. We just kind of flipped it. And what you see here is that Judah is depriving this widow of inclusion in society. He is holding her out. It's only something he can give her. He relegated her to a dead end life, and she decides, I'm not going to stand for this. So the first thing Tamar teaches us is to take hold of justice. Now, we want to seek it out. We want to do it. She did it the wrong way, yes, but she teaches us that justice is a thing that we should look for. How do we know this? Well, when Judah sees the whole situation, he says, she is more righteous than I. And the way you know this is about justice is, I'll explain this to you, okay? Translators aren't sure how to get this really across, what Tamar is forcing Judah to realize. He uses this word called sadak. And that means just. It's a word that was used by a judge. And clearly what is happening is this is like a courtroom drama. Bring her out. Let her be burned. You know, here's the driver's license and passport. Whose baby is it? It's like, here's the evidence. Here's the envelope going back and forth. And he renders a verdict because he's a judge in this case. What's the verdict? The verdict is Sadak. When a judge at this time listened to a trial, he would ask, Whose side is justice on? Not you know, who's right and who's wrong, but who has more justice on their side? The judge's job was to say justice is on your side. And that's what Judah says. Judah looks at what he's done to her, looks at what she's demanding, and he says she has justice on her side. He has been guilty of injustice and oppression. Now, the Bible's taken what Tamar does is so far from what you see on the surface because it does not say Tamar was right with the incest or sexual entrapment. Judah does not say she is righteous, like she is guiltless and I'm guilty. He doesn't say she is innocent and I'm not innocent. He says she's more righteous than I. That's the important part. She's not completely righteous. She's guilty, but I'm more guilty. She may have done wrong in this, but I have done the greater wrong. My sin overshadows her in this case. That's what he's saying. Now, the problem with our culture today is that we are so polarized, right? The liberal take on this is she's an oppressed woman. She didn't do anything wrong. It's her body. It's her choice. She got him back. You go to the conservative take on this. The conservative take is sexual sins are bad. This is terrible. In a liberal sense, it's all about social justice, right? But they leave out the sexual sin. They leave out the adultery. On the other side, the conservative view is it's all about the adultery and the sexual immorality. And they tend to leave out all the oppression that happened to Tamar up to this point. This is why. This isn't a conservative or liberal view. It's not Democrat or Republican position. The Bible doesn't ignore any of the things that we typically try to ignore. A person who has been oppressed may do something wrong to try and end that oppression, and that can still be wrong. Martin Luther King even said that. It's all wrong, but because Judah had the power in that culture, God convicted his heart to say, I have more culpability. Tamar goes after justice. She should. She really should. She's right to do so, but it doesn't mitigate her sin in the process. Secondly, Tamar points us ultimately to Jesus. The story shows there's room in God's family for every single one of us. The Judas, the Tamars, the Mees, the Yous, 
all of us. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It has something that almost no genealogies had back then, and that is women in the genealogy. Jesus will have four in his genealogy. How do Tamar and Judah point to Jesus? Tamar essentially gets her life back when Judah looks at her and he says, in spite of your sin, you are righteous. He says, Sadak, as messed up as Judah is, he is pointing us ultimately to the ultimate line of the tribe of Judah. He is pointing to his descendant because what we need, the thing that will enable us to work for true justice in the world while not ignoring the depth of our own sin or society's sin is Jesus. Judah was about to punish Tamar for his sins. And Jesus, the real Judah, took the punishment for our sins upon himself. This is why this story, it's not a morality tale. It's about acknowledging our sin before God and then His grace in saving us. We are made righteous through the precious blood of Jesus and not our own. Guys, look, we are not more righteous than Jesus, but we can be just as righteous as Jesus because of the gospel. That is the beauty, that God would look at us, and when God looks at us through what Christ has done, you know what God says about us? Sadak. Sadak. Not that you are more righteous than Christ, but you have the righteousness of Christ placed upon you by believing in what Jesus has done. We get to be righteous. The judge of all the universe looks at us and he declares us righteous, not through any work that we have done, but because of the work that he has done. And this is the beauty of grace. And this is what we learn from Tamar. There are certain things I believe that God calls us to look towards in the world to try and set things straight and set things right. But we also want to be those who serve and worship God in the midst of that, who point everything back to Him and what He is doing. Because the beauty in our lives is that God has declared us righteous. He has taken and placed us in his family because of what he has done. And no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, there is grace that is extended by God towards you. Surrender your life to Christ and come and be part of his family. And God will say over you, Sadak. This is one of the reasons every week we come to communion. Communion is a place where you break a cracker that reminds us of Christ's body that was given for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a remembrance of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because of Sadak. This is what we remember, that we have been declared righteous by what God himself has done. And so we get to be those who live in grace because our God has first given us grace. That's the beauty. Guys, if you need prayer this morning, maybe you're going through something in your life or you've done something or something has been done to you and you feel unclean, you feel dirty, you feel unrighteous and you want someone to pray with you right across the way in the lounge. You go during music, you can go after service, but we would love to be able to pray with you about that and help you to understand what grace truly looks like and that how God in the midst of your life can declare you clean can declare you righteous because of what Christ has done. We are a church who also believes that our God is a generous God, so we want to be a generous people. We do not pass an offering plate. If you'd like to give, you can put it in one of the boxes on the side walls or, or give online. But our God has been generous, so we want to be generous. God is so generous in His grace. 
And I would encourage you to take those four questions in those sermon notes and look at those. What, what does this passage say to you? Is there someone in your life that has maybe messed up really bad and it's like, there's no coming back from that? Well, there actually is because Jesus was crucified for whatever they did. Or maybe you've done something. Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to cover that as well. This means we get to be a free people who step into God's grace that has been given to us, and we can live lives, especially stepping into this Christmas season, of joy and freedom and hope, because our God has said Sadak over us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would move us to an understanding of what it means to be declared righteous, not more righteous than you, but the beauty is that we get to be declared, be declared just as righteous as Christ, which just seems like such a foreign concept when we understand the depth of our own sin. The places where we have quite frankly lived in ways that do not honor or respect who you are. And so I ask that today we would get a better understanding of our own salvation, of the grace that we've received. And that would in turn change us to begin to live in this world in a way that reflects who you are, the call of you over our lives. And that we would then be able to step out and begin to show this changed life. Just like after this moment, Judah and his changed life. And it comes about, yes, because of what your spirit did in him where he became broken. But you used Tamar in the midst of it to do that. And so I ask that you would use us to not just help people understand the broken places where they are, but also the grace that we get to receive and live in you. I ask that you would use us as your people to learn what we learned from all of these stories, and that is that you are good, and your grace is given to us, and then we in turn are to give that to others. Lifting up you, glorifying the majesty of your name, so the world would know that our great God has come and declared as righteous as an act that he has done himself. Have, that, have us be a people that live in humility because of that. And we ask that in your son's good name. Amen. So we close these curtains, guys. Just take a moment and think about maybe an area in your life where maybe it feels like it's overwhelming you, it's defining who you are. Not that there isn't ways to begin to work through that but think about what it means that God has said Sadak over that, over you. And so it's not about you trying to clean it all up, to make it all better. Yes, there may be some places and things you've got to work through in that. But ultimately, that's not your identity. That your identity isn't what God has said about you. So take a moment and just say, God, show me these places in my life that I am letting these things define me rather than what you have said about me define me. And as you kind of begin to do that work, then come up, sing some songs with us, take communion. We'll, we'll head out.
you know, into this Christmas season, hopefully as a people who live in this grace that God has given us. And we can understand that righteousness is not something we produce on our own. It is something that has been declared over us and we get to live in because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ.